Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, using interactive GPS technology to promote Florida history. So in essence, a person uh, who may be traveling down a a highway, a freeway, uh, inside of a community can learn instantly about sites, about the communities they're coming into, about specific buildings. We'll meet a Miami Herald paperboy from the 1940s. The Miami Herald, I did about 125. Every morning before I went to school, I got up at 4 o'clock. And we'll discover more than 100 ancient canoes near Gainesville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends I can't wait to get on the road again on the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again If you'll be traveling around Florida in the coming months, you'll be able to use your cell phone or other GPS-based devices to access information about Florida history and historic sites. Jay Clune, Associate Professor and Chair of the History Department at the University of West Florida, and Patrick Moore, Associate Professor and Director of Public History at the University of West Florida, have received a grant from the Florida Humanities Council to develop interactive GPS-based technological resources to introduce people to Florida history. Jay Clune. Our project is about getting scholarly, vetted material to the general public and to encourage people to visit historic towns. Uh, A lot of people, millions of people, uh, travel down interstate highways, and we want to get them off the highway visiting historic towns of Florida. As the next Exit History Project continues, more and more information will be available on your cell phone and other devices. Right now, you can visit nextexithistory.org to download information on your iPod or MP3 player. Patrick Moore. Essentially, the way the technology works is by using uh, existing GPS technology in conjunction with 3G uh, database uh, networking technological resources, essentially uh, cell phones, uh, uh, PDA devices that can download data. So in essence, a person uh, who may be traveling down a a highway, a freeway uh, inside of a community can learn instantly about sites, about the communities they're coming into, about specific buildings, uh, by having that data delivered directly into their GPS-aware device. 
So they take the device, uh, they have it turned on, and as they come into range, it pulls in the data, it tells them, are you interested in learning about this? They hit play and they can hear a podcast, either video or audio, that will provide them information on it. So a very interesting way, it's a very active way rather than passive. They don't have to go looking for the information, the information will look for them. Some historic sites and museums provide visitors with wand phones that you can use to listen to information while walking from one point of interest to another. Usually, you enter a specific number to hear about a particular place, event, or object. Clune and Moore explain that the next exit history system is much more sophisticated, and you can use it to create your own self-guided tour. Yes, if you go to our website, uh, nextexithistory.org, you'll see all the podcasts that are up there. Uh, many are historic towns. Uh, many others are historic sites. So we have both the site level and the town level. And that's the beauty of this device that, that as you said, unlike a, a pre-recorded, a pre-programmed structure where you go in the pattern which has been set for them, you go where you want to go and the information will find you. At the same time, it is possible to, uh, to put in your own selected information. If you're interested in learning about Civil War sites, if you're interested in ghost stories, if you're interested in interesting architecture, those uh, podcasts which are developed not just by us but scholarly vetted by people, uh, the system that we've developed, all, people can upload materials all across the state, all across the country. Uh, as they go around, they can identify what sites they're looking at, and it will take them to it. So you say, take me to the next site, and it will guide you to it so that you have essentially a, an automated tour guide in your pocket. But it's important to recognize, though, that this isn't a substitute for a real tour. If you were interested in perhaps going down to a place like historic Pensacola Village, it'll give you just a sampling of one minute, one and a half minute sort of overview of a site. And if you're interested in learning about it, go buy a ticket, and then you can join and, and learn about them directly. As images of Pensacola shift over an iPhone screen linked to Next Exit History, this audio plays. Welcome to Pensacola, Florida, the site of one of the first European settlement attempts in American history. Over 400 years ago, colonists from Spain first explored and settled the shores of the city's pristine deep water harbor. Led by conquistador Don Tristan de Luna, this settlement attempt in 1559 predates the founding of Jamestown, Virginia, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and even neighboring St. Augustine, Florida. Unfortunately, the settlement failed when a large hurricane destroyed their fleet and the majority of their supplies. The colony was abandoned and Pensacola remained unsettled for over 130 years. But this was only the beginning. Pensacola's history is filled with exciting and significant events and people whose stories and memory are preserved within the city's numerous buildings, sites, and museums. From the age of exploration to the space age, the city of Pensacola has played a critical role in the development of the region, state, and country. Jay Kloon says that many people have been involved in the development of the Next Exit History Project. Uh, we brought in a lot of folks. We had to use uh, uh, graduate students throughout the state. We had graduate students from the University of South Florida, the University of Florida, uh, traveling southeast, southwest, and central Florida, also from the University of West Florida. We had historians, uh, Dr. Jim Cusick at the University of Florida and Dr. Mark Greenberg at the University of South Florida who vetted the information, made sure it was accurate, and then we had to rely on uh, uh, 
uh, professional voices here at the University of West Florida to, to produce the podcast, and, and most importantly, the Florida Humanities Council to fund all of this. Of course, many people are accustomed to exiting Florida highways when they see a brown historic district sign or pulling over to read the state's black historic markers, but Patrick Moore says that the next exit history technology appeals to a new generation. Well, we've realized for a long time that, that learning styles have changed from just, I mean, obviously within the last five, ten years even, you're looking at just quantum leaps in the way we consume information. That For a long time it was, it was books and documentaries that you might see on PBS. Uh, and then as time went on, now we see, you know, whole different forms. People, people go to Wikipedia and they pull up information. Who knows whether that information is accurate? And now you're finding more and more people with uh, PDAs, pod, uh, iPods, uh, the, the MP3 players. How is it that we can reach those people, young and old alike, who are interested in thinking about technology and the way we learn and the way we use information in different ways? And this sort of tries to meet that intersection of uh, using, shall we say, 20th century ideas in a 21st century way. While Clune and Moore are based in Pensacola at the University of West Florida, they emphasize that Next Exit History is a statewide project. We have 50 historic towns across the state, and we're trying to go into those communities now and do individual sites in each community, so it is a statewide effort. We've done, uh, for example, the small out-of-the-way places, uh, Felsmere, uh, Sebastian, um, uh, Clewiston, We've done uh, Defuniac Springs, McNope. We've done larger towns such as Jacksonville and Tallahassee, Pensacola, St. Augustine. Uh, some are audiovisual, some are audio, and we've tried to cover uh, the entire state. And, and our goal would be really not that we, as uh, the University of West Florida and University of South Florida Consortium, uh, looking to try and do everything. The idea is to develop a pilot concept and that we can encourage historical societies, universities elsewhere around the state and around the country ultimately to start producing their own. We've developed a database entry system that can, that can be simply used. It's a very easy mechanism by which you can incorporate materials, develop very straightforward scripts, uh, guidelines for how to create them in such a way that they're consumable by users. The idea is to make it uh, very user-friendly in a way that both researcher, uh, vetter, and then the user will all be very comfortable with. While Clune and Moore have already covered many cities and towns, local historical societies and museums will be able to utilize this process to develop their own presentations. Patrick Moore. Absolutely. And, and uh, right now we're just in the final stages of com completing, uh, completing that database entry form, and uh, we're working with a startup uh, companies right now to find the server space and to, to fund that that element of it because it's, it's easy to you to have a university rely on university servers for a relatively simple amount of information now we want to get it so that we, we've worked out as many of the bugs as we can to this point so that local organizations can do it once it becomes live they can go to nextexithistory.org uh, contact us and then we can help them with that interface process and then upload it so that it will all become very uh, self-operative and streaming collectively. Jay Clune, Associate Professor and History Department Chair at UWF, and Patrick Moore, Associate Professor and Director of the Public History Program at UWF, are developing the Next Exit History Project with funding from the Florida Humanities Council. On the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends, and I can't wait to get on the road again.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to order books about Florida history, view historic photographs, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. I walk down to the blue side of town Where there's no happiness, no joy Down at the end of a long dark street I saw a little paper boy Paper boy, paper boy I've got bad news for you Paper boy, paper boy my own headlines for today They've been the same since she went away One dark-haired angel disappears Seems like she's been gone a million years Paper boy, paper boy So long, goodbye Paper boy, paper boy Thanks for listening while I cry Many people fear that the days of the daily newspaper are numbered as more and more people get their news and information from other sources. Janie Gould from WQCS spoke with a man who has fond memories of delivering the Miami Herald in the 1940s as he saved money for college. It's an all-American icon, a scene that Norman Rockwell could have painted, the paper boy pedaling his bike in the wee hours. W.J. Thompson, one-time teacher of the year in Martin County, worked as a paper boy when he was growing up. It was from the late 40s through the mid-50s, and it paved the way for him to go to college. The Miami Herald, I did about 125. Every morning before I went to school, I got up at 4 o'clock, and Mr. Donaldson brought the papers. Did you deliver them on foot? No, I had a bicycle. I was like the Jefferson. I had moved up. And then after school, before I went to band rehearsal, I had delivered the Fort Pierce News Tribune. There are people, older people right today, called me Paperboy. Is that right? Yes. There's a lady in a nursing home. About four years ago, she knew me as Mr. Thompson. But I saw her in the nursing home the other day. I said, do you know me? She said, yes. I said, what's my name? She said, Paperboy. So you delivered 365 days a year, right? Yes. And my parents didn't have to get me up to do this. Did you have an alarm clock in your room or what? No. We lived in an upstairs house, and every morning when Mr. Donaldson would come, I would hear whether it was raining or shining. Christmas Day or whenever? Whenever. Did different people want their papers put in different places? Did you sort of know where everybody... Uh, uh, I knew. There was one place on the second floor, and I got so good I could just toss it and end up there on the porch on the second floor. Was your route in East Stewart? Only in East Stewart. Did you have to put together the sections? No, no, no. They were already together, but I had to roll them and put a, a rubber band around them, and that took some time. 
I had double baskets on my bicycle. I had a big basket here and a big basket there. And by the time I would get to our house, which was in the center of the East Hill community, then I would load up again. I would go over into the Little Dixie on Tarpon area. So you started in the fifth grade and you delivered for how many years? Until I graduated from high school when I marched down the aisle. Did you ever get sick and did your parents ever have to do it for you? No. My sister would sometime help me out when she wasn't arguing. <laughs> you could get her up at 4 o'clock in the morning sometimes? No no, 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 no. That was nothing like that. I would do all of my preliminary work. If you missed somebody's house, did they call your house to ask where their paper was? Mm-hmm. But see, I knew my route so well that I would know whether or not I had missed somebody. If I took 75 papers for the first route and I had three papers left, then I knew that somebody had to be missed. How much did you make in a week for yourself? About $50, and that was big money then during that day. Sure was. That was all your spending money, I guess. No, that was money to put up for college. My mother had me to put it up in a savings account. Did your job include collecting from your customers? I had to collect on Sunday morning, Sunday morning and Monday afternoon. Was that ever hard? It was hard for me with some people because some of them tried to duck me. You knew they were there, though, didn't you? Oh, yes. I would go to the door and knock on the door. Sometimes they would spy me. They would tell the children, say, Mama said she's not home. And come back tomorrow afternoon. Dr. W.J. Thompson retired after 40 years of teaching. He recently published a history of the East Stewart community. It was a 17-year project involving 2,000 interviews. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. my own headlines for today they've been the same since she went away one dark haired angel disappears seems like she's been gone a million years paper boy paper boy so long This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
few thousand years ago, the only ways to get around Florida were on foot or in a canoe on watery paths connecting many of the state's lakes and rivers. Bill Dudley reports on how the discovery of more than 100 prehistoric canoes at Noonan's Lake near Gainesville is allowing experts to gain new insight into the lives of Florida's first people. On a summer's morning, a group of archaeologists and helpers are hard at work on the north side of Noonan's Lake, just east of Gainesville. They're digging in wet sand with trowels and hands, uncovering the remains of canoes left behind by people who lived here nearly 5,000 years ago. We tried to carefully brush and remove sand with our hands, but trowel where we could in certain places. So it was kind of a mixture of methods. The wood is very, very, it looks good to the naked eye, but technically there's a lot of decay and deterioration. As an archaeobotanist at the Florida Museum of Natural History, Donna Rule was called to identify the nature of the wood. Of the boats that could be analyzed, most were pine, but a few were cypress. Pine was a wood that has a lot of resins in it, and the technology for the dugout canoe is to actually burn in part and chip away with a stone tool or a shell tool in this part of the state or this part of the country. Cypress, which is really, even though it's technically, biologically called a softwood, it's hard, it's durable, and much harder to break down. And I think there would have been a heck of a lot more time involved with working cypress without metal tools. The ancient canoes were first found in the dry lake bed in the spring of 2000 by a Gainesville high school teacher and some of his students doing environmental work. As more and more boats were uncovered, archaeologists were amazed at the magnitude of the discovery. There are more canoes at Noonan's Lake within two miles of shoreline than have ever been found anywhere else, as far as I know, in the world at one time. It's not simply by chance that there happen to be a lot of canoes there, just like there are everywhere else, but we haven't found them elsewhere. It truly is a case that there are many, many canoes here. Florida's state archaeologist Jim Miller says canoes made sense to a society without draft animals or anything with wheels. Prehistoric people, Indian people, lived around Noonan's Lake, and clearly the canoe does two things. It offers a way to exploit an environment, a watery environment like that lake, and it also offers the only way in pre-Columbian America to travel long distances other than by walking. But finding so many boats in one place has raised new questions for the experts. Thinking about abandonment, thinking about drifts, water that, you know, the wind having an effect on the lake and bringing them over to one edge of the lake. But then they should be more piled up than they really were. By and large, they really did have a north-south kind of orientation as though they were sort of tethered or brought to the shore and left there. There was one, I believe, that appeared as though it was set up on pilings or some such thing, and so that always led us to wonder about the possibility of them being intentionally made there as well as the fact that they're deposited there for whatever reason. In the Creek language, the name of Noonan's Lake is Pithlachoco, and we were informed by the chief of the Seminole tribe that that is a name which means place of long boats. And there's some speculation that it is a lake which is well known and has been well known for centuries 
uh, for making canoes. Hidden in soft lake bottom, the decaying wooden canoes are only a little bit harder than the surrounding sand, making studying them a ticklish process. The latest carbon dating results indicate a wide range in their ages. The cluster of dates is primarily in the what we would consider the archaic time period here in Florida, and that's 3,000 to 5,000 years ago for the canoe dates. Then there was another clustering of canoes that dated between 23 and 2,700 years ago, and then in the 500 to maybe 1,200 years ago. Rule says the 1,000-year gap may correspond to a time when sea level was down, with a drop in water water tables on the peninsula. Meanwhile, with present drought conditions in Florida, more boats have been turning up around the state. It's important to understand that if a canoe is removed from water, it will be destroyed upon exposure to the air. Uh, Wooden canoes are extremely fragile. They can hardly support their own weight most of the time, and they require special conservation treatment in order to become stable and to retain their original shape and size. So if you find a canoe, you need to contact a local museum or contact the Division of Historical Resources in Tallahassee, and you can find us on the web at www.flheritage.com. Still, experts are excited by the possibilities of more such finds, leading to increased understanding of the lives of ancient Floridians. I love wood, I love working wood, and I love handling the old wood, which many might think is odd, but... uh, I find it fascinating, always have, and I felt privileged to actually be part of this project. I think it's a part of our history that we should know more and more about, and we haven't really thought about the significance of this maritime culture to the level that we probably should have. We knew it was there, but this magnitude of so many canoes in one place really makes us question how many other lakes around the state may have more of this story. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week as we explore a wide variety of topics. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.